0: You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Continuing to uh, look at the book of Judges, we're going to finish this book over six weeks, and this is week number three, so we're we're moving kind of rapidly through this this book, and we've talked about several times sort of the pattern that develops through this book and, and that you see time and again. And um, we're going to see it tonight, and we saw it last week. And what happens is uh, there's, a, there's a period of of rest and of peace, and then uh, all of a sudden the children of Israel get uh, complacent. They begin to uh, just don't, they don't rely on God at all, and they they fall into sinfulness. And then God raises up a... An enemy nation to come against them and to bring judgment upon them and for different periods of time. And we see that at times decades go by. And and they live in this sinfulness and under the judgment of God. And 80 years goes by and they don't do anything about it. And finally they've had enough and they cry out to the Lord. And they repent of their sin and they confess their sin and then God raises up a judge, as we'll see tonight, with Gideon. And and then they they're delivered from that. And then there will be a time of rest again. And then they get complacent and they sin and the whole thing starts over again. And we see that time and time again. And not only do we see it in this period of history with Israel, but we see it in our own life. That God is blessing us and we're doing well and... And all of a sudden we think, you know what, I don't really need the Lord. And, and we probably don't say that. Like, we don't come out and say, I don't need you, God. But the way we live our life, we don't read the Bible. We don't pray. Uh, we, we're not in, involved in ministry anymore. We're, we're not in fellowship. And, and we just begin to say to the Lord, I don't really need you that much. I, I, I don't trust you. I'm not going to obey you. And, and then there's some sort of judgment that comes into our life. We even looked at that in Colossians on Sunday. Remember how it talks about that the wrath of God is against those who are disobedient? And that's clearly applicable to the life of a believer as much as it is an unbeliever. God's wrath can be against us as believers and we see the repercussions of our sin. And we see God's judgment being borne out in our life as we're not in His will. And then we cry out to the Lord, and, and we confess our sin, and we repent. And and tragically and sadly, this pattern will happen over and over again in the life of a believer even. It doesn't have to be that way. And, and hopefully that isn't descriptive of your life. But let's, as we look at this, let's look at it through the eyes of those that would say, God, I don't want this to be true of me. And if it is true of you, then, then repent of that and move on from that and break that cycle in your life. But one thing that we never want to do as we study the Word is look at it through the lens of just the characters that are being described. If you're reading the Bible and you're only identifying with people like Jesus... And Paul when he was doing well. And Peter when he was being victorious. And if you're only identifying with the, those that are champions in the Bible, then you're reading the Bible wrong. We ought to be identifying with the Pharisees. We ought to be identifying with the children of Israel who are in this pattern of sin. And we ought to be saying, Lord, I don't want that to be true of me. God, keep me from that. Lord, what, what steps do I need to take? To keep me from that. And so tonight, we're going to look at the life of Gideon. Beginning in Judges chapter 6. And in the first 24 verses, we see the call of Gideon. The call on his life. And this call that we see with Gideon is is not something that is unique to him. God is calling each of us to serve him. God wants to, to call each one of us into a closer walk with him that he might use us for a specific purpose. And so let's look at these first 24 verses. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Shocking, right? They've just had victory over Sisera and, and the, the enemy army there and, in chapters 3 and 4. And, and then they celebrated it in chapter 5. And they sang and they danced. And it was just a great victory. But now they do evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. And so, what a tragedy. Because of their sin, the Midianites are against them. And they're so afraid of these people that they're living in caves and in dens and in the strongholds. Because they're so fearful of these people. And that's what sin does. It it brings fear into our life. It brings isolation. H- have you known people that are living in sin and you just, you don't hear from them anymore? And you can't get a hold of them and you call them and they don't answer their phone and they're ashamed and and they're living in fear and they're living in isolation because of it. And initially sin seems so fun and it seems so attractive and it seems like the thing to do and then it brings destruction and it brings all of this kind of result in our life and so it was whenever Israel had sown the Midianites would come up also the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and so they were living in their homeland They, they weren't Taken captive somewhere else they were still living in their homeland and the midianites didn't invade their land They were living under the captivity of the midianites But the midianites would just come to rob them and then they would leave And so here they would do all this work. So picture it. You're a farmer You've just brought in your harvest And now here come the midianites and they steal everything that you've harvested. That's what was happening Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. So it wasn't only the harvest, but it was their their animals and their livestock. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. At this time, camels were... Were, were kind of like tanks of our day. They were intimidating, they're huge. If you ever been on a camel? The, when I was in Israel, I, I was able to ride on one, and I was unprepared for how tall they are. Like, they're just laying on the ground, and you get on top of one, and then all of a sudden, you're like ten feet in the air. And it's like, whoa, I wasn't prepared for that. And they kind of have this gangly walk, but they're huge, and they're intimidating, and they're, they're kind of aggressive at times. And, and so they, they would use them for war. And, and it would intimidate the people. Obviously it intimidated the Israelites as they're living in caves and hiding for their lives. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So here they cry out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And so before he raises up a judge, in this case Gideon, he is going to speak to them through a prophet. And so before they can see the the hand of God, they need to hear the word of God. And he says... I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And so he's reminding them of the deliverance there in Egypt through Moses. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And so God reminds them of his power. That he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Kind of like reminding them, look, I delivered you then, I can deliver you again. And then he also reminds them of his love. That it was his love that that brought him to do that. He could have just left them in Egypt to die, but he didn't because he loves them. And so he's reminding them of his power to deliver, of his, of his love for them. But then he says, look, you have not obeyed my voice. And so it's kind of like he's telling them, you don't deserve for me to do anything in your life. And And I think that we need to be reminded of that. That God is powerful to save us. He's powerful to deliver us. He's powerful to provide for us. He loves us. And he wants to remind us of that. But... There's also this this sense that we don't deserve it. That that we haven't obeyed his voice. That he, he came to us while we were sinners. And so this prophet comes and he speaks the word of God to them. And now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orphra, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide from the Midianites. And so, here's Gideon, this man that's going to be mightily used by the Lord. And he's so fearful that he's actually threshing his wheat, and that's where you separate the wheat from the chaff. And normally you would do this on a hillside, where the wind could come and blow the wheat and separate it from the chaff. And, And the The heavy wheat would fall down and the chaff would get blown away. And and that's how they would do that. It would be really difficult to do this in a wine press, which was normally in a sunken area, a protected area, where the wind isn't blowing. It would be really difficult to do it there. But he was doing it there because he was so afraid that if the Midianites saw him threshing his wheat, they'd come and rob him and kill him. So here's this mighty warrior, Gideon. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, there's a couple things. Either the angel could be being sarcastic, which probably isn't the case. If it were me, that that may be true. If I were this angel, that's probably what it would be. But more than likely, this is an angel speaking for the Lord. And and actually, as we're going to see, this is is what's called a Christophany. An appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. More than likely, he's speaking what Gideon will be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus said to Peter, "Your, your name right now is is little stone, but I'm going, I'm going to name you the mighty rock. Now, did Peter really deserve to have that name? Not really, because subsequent to that, he would deny the Lord, and, and he, he would just totally run from a little servant girl because he was so afraid. And yet God saw the work that he was going to do in his life, and he named him appropriately. We see that throughout the Bible. And that's what's happening here with Gideon. You mighty man of valor. Even though you're afraid, even though you're down here in this wine press, you're a mighty man in my eyes. And Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And so Gideon begins to blame God For the predicament that they're in. And I think we're guilty of that often, aren't we? Lord, why aren't you providing for me? Lord, why why don't I have any money and yet you you look at your checkbook and and you see that your priorities are completely out of alignment and, and that you really haven't been putting Jesus first in your financial affairs or you look and you see that you've completely mismanaged your money, and 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 yet we want to blame God. God, why am I in this situation? I'm not saying that that's always the case, but but often people will blame God for things that just have nothing to do with the Lord. They're just the repercussions, the natural byproduct of. Sowing to our flesh, and the Bible says you will reap corruption. The the principle of sowing and reaping happens in our life. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. And so he begins to blame God. Why is this happening? Where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. God hadn't forsaken them. They forsook the Lord. They were the ones that turned their back on the Lord. And yet Gideon has this twisted in his mind. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now I think this is amazing. I think this is a great lesson for us in that God doesn't correct Gideon here. It would be my natural tendency to say, Hey, Gideon, you're you're out to lunch, dude. Let, let's, let's set this straight a little bit. You guys turned your back on me. You forsook me. Do you, do you understand that? Let's get that straight before we do anything else. But God doesn't correct him at all. You guys, as parents, I think certainly as friends as a church body, you don't always need to correct people. You don't always need to set people straight. Sometimes it's okay for people to have erroneous thoughts. Sometimes it's okay for people to be out to lunch. Just be led by the Lord. And if God isn't really speaking to you to say anything, then don't feel like you have to say something. And and oftentimes people will say things to me maybe in counseling or after a service that i just patently disagree with and and that is unbiblical that is wrong but i don't always correct people because sometimes people just aren't ready for it or i want to let the lord do it and they're just they're not in a place where they're going to receive that now i don't always do this perfectly by any means oftentimes i correct people when i shouldn't and gets into all kinds of debates and arguments, and, oh, I didn't do that, or I, you know, I didn't mean it that way, or whatever. But here I think it's, it's just fabulous how God doesn't correct him at all. And I think it's a great lesson for us. He, he just says to him, like, Gideon, are you ready to do what I've called you to do? Go out in this might of yours. What might might he be referring to? Because we don't see a lot of might here. We see him making excuses. We see him blaming God for things that aren't God's fault. We see him hiding out in a wine press. I think the might that he's referring to here is his humility. I think it's that he's the foolish things of the world that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. That God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And in God's economy, that is might. That is power. God takes our weaknesses and he uses them. Go out in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? In other words, are you ready? Let's get moving here. So he said to him, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And so we're the smallest, we're the weakest clan, my tribe, my family. My family. And, and, and I'm the least in my father's house. So I am the least of the smallest clan in the tribe of Manasseh. Lord, why are you choosing me? And God's saying to him, exactly. That's why I'm choosing you. Because I want to get the glory. Because I use the foolish things of the world. And we're going to see that over and over in this story. Right from the beginning, God had a plan of using a man who you wouldn't normally choose. If you're going to start an army, if you're going to start a military, and you want a general, Gideon's probably not your guy. And yet, he was the Lord's guy, because God uses the most ridiculous things. It's our tendency to to choose nobility, to choose People that are smart to choose the rich, to choose the powerful. And yet God chooses the foolish things of the world. And so if you're a person who was always chosen last, you know how that feels, you know, when there's like 20 kids and there's two leaders and, you know, I pick this person and that person and and you're the last one to be picked. That's like a horrible feeling. If you're that type of person and maybe it's happened to you not only on the playground but in, in jobs. Maybe you didn't do well in school. Maybe you just feel like you're always being looked over. Know this, that God can use you. Because God just needs a person who understands their weakness And their inability to do anything apart from him. That's what he needs. He doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your abilities. He doesn't need your gifts. He doesn't need your intelligence. In fact, oftentimes, those things get in the way. And so if you're that person, man, take great comfort in that tonight. The Lord tells Gideon, I want to use you. I don't need... Your strength. Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. And so Gideon wants to see that this is really the Lord. And I don't blame Gideon for this. I think later he's going to really move into doubting God and, and wanting God to, to show him more signs. But I think this is, this is just fine for us to ask the Lord to confirm things. Now, when God gives us his word and he says something in his word to us that's very clear, then we need to take him at his word. But there are times when you're not sure. It's it's more personal. It's a, a specific thing for you, and you need God to confirm that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when God confirms it, as he does for Gideon, then step out. Don't ask God to keep confirming it, as we'll see him do. Show me a sign. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. And so here's this this appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And what we need to understand is this is not Jesus incarnate. This is Jesus taking on the appearance of a man before his incarnation. A theophany or a Christophany. But Jesus literally became a man in the incarnation. And he took on a body. And he rose bodily, the Bible tells us in Luke 24. He's eternally 100 percent God and 100 percent man. There is a, a heresy that says that Jesus just took on deity, or took on humanity for a time, and then he left that human body, you know behind and, and is now no longer human. And that's heresy. It started with a man by the name of Arian in the first century. It it is now, today, uh, being propagated through Jehovah's Witnesses. And and so, that's that's a heresy. We We don't ascribe to that at all. But what we see here is Jesus, before the Incarnation, taking on the appearance of a man, a Christophany. He says, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon... "...went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, "'Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth.' And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread... And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord, which is a a, a phrase, a title given to, to Jesus often in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, this appearance of Christ, departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that. He was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. And to this day it is still in Ephra of the Abizrites. And so this call of Gideon called To go and to defeat the Midianites. And now before he can go and do that. There's some house cleaning that he needs to take care of. It says now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him. Take your father's young bull. The second bull of seven years old. And tear down the altar of Baal. That your father has. And cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And so they have these idols. These images. These false gods that they're worshipping. And They would be worshipping Baal at one moment and then worshipping Yahweh, the true God, in another moment. And so there was this real sort of compromise in that they wanted to worship the false gods. It gave them a sense of security, but they wanted to hang on to the true and living God as well. And clearly we see that in our own life as we have all kinds of gods that creep into our life. And we don't put them up to bow down to them, but there's many false gods in our own lives. And so before we point fingers and and just say, how in the world could you worship Baal in one moment and and worship Yahweh in another, we have to look at our own life and say, man, how could we show up on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and raise our hands and praise be to the Lord and, and then the next day, be worshiping at the altar of money or success or power, or indulging ourselves in in some kind of sinful activity that we know is wrong, and and yet worshiping at the same time. And so it, it happens in all of our lives, and and it's, it has to be cut down. It has to be cut out and rooted out as God commands. Gideon to do he says build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock and in the proper arrangement and take the second bowl and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down so Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day he did it by night and so he obeys, but he obeys in fear. And I will say this for him: It's better to obey fearfully than not to obey at all. At least he obeyed. He did it fearfully, but at least he obeyed. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal, there was the altar of Baal, torn down, and the wo- wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And so it didn't really do him any good to do it by night because they found out about it anyway. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by mourning. If he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. In other words, if Baal's so powerful and if we're praying to him and if he's really a God, then he ought to be able to defend himself. Very logical and and something that uh, I think you know we can think about. In, in our own life if we're so worried about these things that apparently mean so much to us and if if they're so powerful and, and if, if they deserve to have the place in our life that they do then they ought to be able to carry us through they ought to be able to do what we are claiming they can do and, and, and the priority that we're giving to them and so Joash makes a great point here. Therefore on that day he called him Jerubbabel, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet and the Abizrites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they came up to meet them. And so the Spirit of God comes upon Gideon here. And in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon a man for a specific purpose. But the Spirit could also leave a person, and would leave a person. But in the the New Covenant... Jesus said the Spirit would dwell within us and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit comes and lives in our heart and He doesn't come and go. And so when David prayed in Psalm 51, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, that really isn't applicable today as New Testament saints. Because the Spirit doesn't come and go. The Spirit comes and dwells in us and lives in us. But here we see the Spirit of God coming upon Gideon for a specific task, and he needs the power of the Spirit, and we need the power of the Spirit. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. We need his power, we need his strength to accomplish his call in our life. And so we've seen the call on Gideon, we've seen his command, God's command to clean his house, to get rid of the false gods, and he accomplishes that. And so Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And so now he's going to ask God for more signs. and God's already confirmed it, and yet he wants more. I'm going to put this fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test. I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And so the opposite. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. And so he wants more confirmation from the Lord. When God had already done that for him, and I think at this point he's just showing a complete lack of faith He's not trusting God at all. He's not taking Him at His word. And we use this um, story to, to talk about how we want God to confirm things in our life. And we'll say, I'm putting out a fleece. And I don't know that that's the best thing to do. That, that, I don't know that that's the best thing to do if we've heard from God, if He's given us His word to continue to want God to confirm things. If God's confirmed it, then you need to move and you need to go. But God's patient with him and he dwells with him in his weaknesses. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Harad, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Mora in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now we're going to learn that uh, the Israelites uh, had 32,000 soldiers. 32,000 soldiers. It sounds like a big army. But the Midianites were 135,000. And so they're already outnumbered big time. I'm sure that Gideon is already thinking, 32,000 is a pretty good size army, but we're outnumbered. Three to one. Four to one. But we can do this. But now the Lord says to him, you know what, your army's too big. Because I want to get the glory, and and even at the size that you're at right now, you could say that it was was us. That we, we really had a good day, that we really fought well. That we were the underdogs, and we came from behind. But I don't want you to even have that notion. I want this to completely be about my power. And my ability. And so I, I want you to reduce your army. So proclaim in the hearing of the people, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once. Let him go home. Whoever's afraid. So Gideon says, hey, if you're afraid, go ahead and go home. And 22,000 of the people returned. So right there, two-thirds of his army leave. Which in one sense, it's kind of like, man, if those guys were afraid, it's probably good. But you can imagine what's going through Gideon's mind. I had 32, now I have 10. This isn't looking so good. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many. It's like, are you kidding me? They have 135,000, Lord. We're down to 10. I mean, can't we just... Make it work, you know. There's still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. And so... They've got 10,000, they go down and whoever gets down on his belly and just starts drinking the water like a dog, those are the guys I want. It's almost like I want the crazy guys, you know, the ones that are just like full out, just abandoned, just down on their face, lapping up the water like a dog. I mean, you would think it would have been the other way around. Again, like if you were going to choose guys, you'd choose the... The ones that that had enough respect for themselves to get down and scoop the water up. No, the Lord wants the guys that are just on their face in the water. 300 of them against 135,000 trained military men. By the 300, I will save you. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands... And he sent away all the rest of Israel Every man to his tent And he retained those 300 men Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley And so it was The camp of the Midianites was just down below them No wonder these men were afraid That went home Because they were looking down at this huge valley Filled with men and weapons and camels and chariots But now it's 300 men 300 men against 135,000 Midianites. And notice that they have trumpets and torches in their hands. And as we're going to see, they don't really even use weapons. Again, just further showing that God doesn't need us and our military strength to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. In fact, he doesn't really even need these 300. If you think about it, he's whittled it down to 300. Does he really need the 300? He could have done this completely without them, but it shows that God does want to use us. He doesn't need us, but he does want to use us. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. It's it's God who's doing this. He's running the show. He's making the plan. Look, Gideon, get up. It's time to go. I have delivered them into your hand. This is all about the Lord. And you guys, if we want to have this kind of miracle and these kinds of things happen in our life, we need to be completely surrendered and given over to the Lord and completely dependent upon him. We can't be saying, okay, Lord, I want you to work. I want you to do it. I want it to be all about you. And then it's all about us. We have to wait on him. And that's what Gideon does. And and God raises him up. He says, okay, it's time. Go down. I've delivered them. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And so he's still afraid. Gideon is still afraid, and, and for good reason. I mean, he's got 300 guys against 135,000. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number. As the sand by the seashore in multitude. And these are just euphemisms. These are, this is hyperbole to describe how big their army was. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell over and overturned. And the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so Gideon goes down with Pura, his servant, and he overhears as he's listening in on a couple Midianites talking. One of them had a vision, a dream, of this barley loaf rolling into the camp, knocking over a tent. And the other one said, well, this is what it means. It means that Gideon is going to destroy us. And it's interesting because a barley loaf was, was really the, the food of the poor. And the, only the, the impoverished really ate barley. It was kind of a, a food for animals. And so it's kind of interesting that that would be part of this vision because, it, again, it's the foolish things. It's, it's this barley loaf which represents poverty that's going to overturn this powerful army. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And so Gideon is he's encouraged. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. Again, no mention of weapons. They've got a trumpet and a torch. 300 guys against 135,000 and as far as we can tell, they don't have weapons. This doesn't seem like a great plan. And he said to them, look at me. And do likewise, watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp, and say the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And so they divided into three companies of 100 each, and they're going to come from all directions, giving the appearance That they're a huge army. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came out to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And so you can kind of imagine, it's this sleep, you know, just quiet night. Nothing's going on. all of a sudden, here comes 300 guys running out of the woods and out of the hills, blowing trumpets, torches. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. So the Midianites wake up. They don't know what's going on. There's trumpets. There's light. They're running for their lives. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zarah, as far as the border of Abel by Tabith." And the men of Israel gathered together with Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize from the watering places as far as Beth, Barah, and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places, and they captured two princes of the Midianites, and they killed them at the rock of Oreb. And they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zit. Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. And so, the the Midianites just basically go nuts here. They begin to fight against each other. They, They begin to run for their lives. And all because 300 guys are running at them with trumpets and torches. And it was the Lord. It was the Lord that gave Gideon the wisdom to have this idea in the first place. And it was God who had delivered them. And it really didn't matter how it was going to happen. Because it was God that was giving them the victory. And Gideon just got to be a part of it. And that, you guys, is how I want to live my life. I want to live my life in such a way that it's God who's doing the work. That's how I want our church to be. I don't want people to look at our church and go, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, look at the the magnificence of their facility or or look at the money they have or or look at the the giftedness of the people and of the leaders and I don't want any of that. I want people to say, "Man, how in the world are they accomplishing anything? What's going on over there? I want to check that out." Now the men of Ephraim said to him, "Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites?" And so After this kind of settles down and the victory's kind of been won and the the Ephraimites are now talking to Gideon. They're saying, why didn't you include us in this battle? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb, and what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. And, and so he reminds them, look, you had a huge part to play. They, they all ran off and, and you guys were able to capture their, the leaders, brought their heads back. You were a huge part of this. And this is a, a real great example and illustration of Proverbs 15.1 that says a soft answer turns away wrath? Because if Gideon had tried to defend himself or tried to argue with them, it would have just turned into this big thing. But he just said, look, you guys were a big part of it. And he explained it to him, and he he said it with gentleness. And a soft answer does turn away wrath. When, When people confront you and when people want to fight... If you just calmly say something back to them in love, it just diffuses everything. And and it's amazing. Try it tomorrow at work. Try it in your family. Now, do I do this perfectly? I wish I could say I did it regularly. Because I'm kind of a confrontive person. And so when, when people confront me, it's real easy for me to just, you know, confront them back and just be like, what's up? You know, what, what are you talking about? I mean, what, you, you're completely out to lunch, man. That's, that's real easy for me to do. But in the rare occasions that I've applied Proverbs 15.1 in my life, it's amazing how it works. It's amazing how the Lord uses that. Another Proverbs 16.32 says, It is better to control your feelings than to conquer a city. It's better to control your emotions than, than to be a, a leader of a city. In other words, one that has self-control is, is more powerful than one that controls others. It's a lot harder to control yourself than it is to, to control other people. Self-control, it's huge. To control your anger, to control your emotions to not say that thing that you so desperately want to say. And when you don't, it's amazing that just the feeling of that and the victory, and it's like, yeah, Lord, thank you. And when you do indulge in your flesh and you do lash out, you feel so guilty about it. And yet we do it again and again, don't we? And and a lot of how it will play out is, is by preparation. If you're not spending time with the Lord if you're not in His Word, if you're not hearing from Him, then don't expect to have victory in this area. If you're not spending time with the Lord in the morning, then at 2 o'clock, when your boss chews you out, or when that coworker says something to you that really just ticks you off, don't expect to have victory. It just... It's not going to work. And so... Gideon is able to conquer his pride here, his emotions, as well as conquer the Midianites. When Gideon came to the Jordan, verse 4, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Sukkoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted and I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And I think at this point, we begin to see the downfall in Gideon's life. Gideon kind of started bad in a sense, making excuses and questioning God, and then he has this amazing victory And now I think we're going to begin to see him compromise and we're going to begin to see his downfall. And I think it starts right here because we don't see God asking him to do any of this stuff that he's about to do. This seems like he's on a a vigilante mission here to get revenge. He he, he, He runs out against these these men, Ziba and Zalmunna. And he's asking the leaders of Sukkoth if, if they would give bread to his army. And, and they basically said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? In other words, hey, when we see that you've got this thing wrapped up, then maybe we'll talk. We're not going to invest in you until we see... You do something else. It's kind of what they're saying to him. So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And so he's just like ticked. He's just like, you know what? You're not going to help me. When I come back, I'm going to tear you up. And so we saw him have patience with the Ephraimites and handled that so well, and now I think we're equally seeing him handle this wrong. Then he went up from there to Pinuel and spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Pinuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth. So he spoke to the men of Pinuel, saying, When I come back, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000. All who were left of the army of the people of the east for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. And this is where we get the 135,000. There's 15,000 left. There were 120,000 who had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Jogbeha. And he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Ziba and Zalmunah fled, he pursued them, and he took two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunah, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Haraz. And he caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunah, about whom you are ridiculed. About whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to you and your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught, he taught them a lesson. He taught them in a Sukkoth. And so these guys that wouldn't help him along the way, he comes back. He basically publicly just whips them and beats them. Then he tore down the tower of Pinuel, as he said he would, and he killed the men of the city. So he's just ripping their city apart. He's killing their, their, their men. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. "'Each one resembled the son of a king.' "'Then he said, "'They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. "'As the Lord lives, if you would let them live, "'I would not kill you.' "'And he said to, to Jether, his firstborn, "'Rise, kill them.' "'But the youth would not draw his sword, "'for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. "'So Ziba and Zalmunna said, "'Rise yourself and kill us, "'for as a man, so is his strength. "'So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna.' And took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. And so, I mean, Gideon is just like out there. He's taking revenge on his brothers. He's ripping cities apart. He's killing innocent people. He's beating people in the streets. I think he's just on a total flesh mission here. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also. For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, the Lord shall rule over you. And so here, Gideon makes a great statement, a great decision. I'm not going to rule over you. You don't need a king. What we need is the Lord. He's going to rule over us. But what comes out of Gideon's mouth, and then how he responds with his life are two different things. And that so often happens in our life, doesn't it? What comes out of our mouth and then how we live are two different things. He says the right thing. He says, look, I'm not going to be your leader. I'm not going to be your king. God is going to rule over you. But then he says to them, I would like to make a request of you. That each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had gold earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw, into, threw in the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, or about 50 pounds of gold. So it's a fortune. Besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian. And besides the chains that were around their camel's necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon into his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And so he says one thing, but then he does another. He asks Basically, for money. And he turns this thing into a, an idol for them to worship. And he doesn't do anything about their false worship, he just lets it go on. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash or, or Gideon, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And so he's just living it up now. He's got many wives, he's got kids shooting out everywhere, he's loaded. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abizrites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bareth their god. So quite the legacy that Gideon left behind. As soon as he's dead, they're back to Baal worship. They've already been worshiping this ephod, this golden image. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. And we'll see that next week as we move into chapter 9, that they're going to, just uh, treat his family terribly and it, it was a, a terrible legacy that Gideon left behind he started well but he ended in disaster and you guys I want to close with that thought that it isn't how we start it's how we finish God wants us to finish well Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians nine twenty seven. he says I discipline my body I beat it into subjection that I might not disqualify myself from the race. It's not how we start, you guys. And so many people start out just super on fire. And yet they end up in a pile of ashes. It's a daily Walk with the Lord. It isn't what we were doing 20 years ago. It's not what we were doing 10 years ago. It's not what we were doing a year ago. It's what are we doing right now with Jesus. We want to finish well. And if you've gotten off course, if, if you've gotten away from the Lord, man, get back on track so that you might finish well with Jesus, so that our life doesn't end up like Gideon, just an absolute mess, because he launched out in the flesh. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and just the the great truths and applications. God, I thank you for for many of the things in Gideon's life, God, and, and I love the fact that That at the end of his life, Lord, he didn't finish well and yet, God, you included him in in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Lord, you, you counted him as a man of faith. And Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that your grace is sufficient. God, I thank you that even when we blow at you, you still love us and you forgive us. But God, may we not use that as an excuse or as permission to do whatever we want. God, I pray that we would finish well. God, I pray that that we would have the faith that Gideon had to to step out and, and to heed your promises and your word. God, you had given him your word. And he took that word and he allowed it to to be assimilated and to be appropriated into his life. And Lord, I pray that for each one of us, that God, whatever it is that you're calling us to do, whatever it is that you've spoken to us, God, that we would just trust you, that we would step out and and watch you work. And that God, we wouldn't rely on our resources, but God, we would rely upon you. And Lord, even when things look just ridiculous, how in the world are we going to do this with the little that we have? And, and yet, Lord, may this story come to our remembrance that you can defeat a powerful army of 135,000 with 300 unarmed men. God, take that and, and really work it into our theology, into our understanding of how you work in our life. And God, I pray that it would... Bring application, God, that it would truly work its way out in our daily life. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.